Chapter 38 The Story of Cole Younger by Himself This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. What My Life Has Taught Me Looking back through the dimly lighted corridors of the past, down the long vista of time, a time when I feared not the face of mortal man, nor battalions of men, when backed by my old comrades in arms, it may seem inconsistent to say that I appear before you with the timidity born of cowardice, but perhaps you will understand better that I can tell you that twenty-five years in a prison cell fetters a man's intellect as well as his body. Therefore, I disclaim any pretensions to literary merit, and trust that my sincerity of purpose will compensate for my lack of eloquence. And, too, I am not so sure that I care for that kind of oratory that leaves the points to guess at, but rather the simple language of the soul that needs no interpreter. Let me say, ladies and gentlemen, that the furthest thought from my mind is that of posing as a character. I do not desire to stand upon the basis of the notoriety which the past record of my life may have earned for me. Those of you who have been drawn here by mere curiosity to see a character or a man who by the events of his life has gained somewhat of notoriety will miss the real object of this lecture and the occasion which brings us together. My soul's desire is to benefit you by recounting some of the important lessons which my life has taught me. Life is too short to make any other use of it. Besides, I owe too much to my fellow men, to my opportunities, to my country, to my God, and to myself, to make any other use of the present occasion. Since I am to speak to you of some of the important lessons of my life, it may be in order to give you some account of my ancestry. It is something to one's credit to have an ancestry that one need not be ashamed of. One of the poets said, while talking to a select party of aristocracy, Depend on it, my snobbish friend, your family line you can't ascend. Without good reason to apprehend, you'll find it waxed at the farther end. With some plebeian vocation, or what is worse, your family line, may end in a loop of stronger twine that plagues some worthy relation. But I am proud to say, ladies and gentlemen, that no loop of stronger twine that he referred to ever plagued any relation of mine. No member of our family or ancestry was ever punished for any crime or infringement of the law. My father was a direct descendant from the Lees on one side and the Youngers on the other. The Lees came from Scotland, tracing their line back to Bruce. The Youngers were from the city of Strasbourg, on the Rhine, descending from the ruling family of Strasbourg when that was a free city. My sainted mother was a direct descendant from the Sullivans, Ladens, and Percivals of South Carolina, the Taylors of Virginia, and the Fristos of Tennessee. Richard Fristow's mother's father was one of three judges appointed by the governor of Missouri to organize Jackson County and was then elected one of the first members of the legislature. Jackson County was so named in honor of his old general, Andrew Jackson, with whom he served at the Battle of New Orleans. My father and mother were married at Independence, the county seat of Jackson County, and there they spent many happy years, and there my own happy childhood days were spent. There were 14 children of us. I was the seventh. There were seven younger than myself. How often, in the dark days of the journey over the sea of life, have I called up the happy surroundings of my early days when I had a noble father and a dear mother to appeal to in faith for counsel. There had never been a death in the family up to 1860, except among our plantation Negroes. Mine was a happy childhood. I do not desire to pose as an instructor for other people, yet one man's experience may be of value to another. And it may not be presumptuous for me to tell some of the results of experience, a teacher whose lessons are severe, but at least worthy of consideration. I might say, perhaps, with Shakespeare, 
I have bought golden opinions from all sorts of people. The subject of my disclosure tonight is the index of what is to follow. I believe that no living man can speak upon his theme with more familiarity. I have lived the gentleman, the soldier, the outlaw, and the convict, living the best 25 years of my life in a felon's cell. I have no desire to pose as a martyr, for men who sin must suffer, but I will punctuate my remarks with bold statements, for the eagle should not be afraid of the storm. It is said that there are but three ways by which we arrive at knowledge in this world, by instruction, by observation, and by experience. We must learn our lessons in life by some one or all of these methods. Those of us who do not or will not learn by instruction or by observation are necessarily limited to the fruits of experience. The boy who is told by his mother that fire burns and who has seen his brother badly burned surely does not need to have the facts still more clearly impressed upon his mind by experience. Yet in the majority of cases, it takes experience to satisfy him by a kind of necessity which I cannot at this point stop to explain. I have had to learn some very impressive lessons of my life by the stern teacher experience. Some people express a desire to live life over again under the impression that they could make a better success of it on a second trip. Such people are scarcely logical, however sincere they may be in a wish of this kind. They seem to forget that by the unfailing law of cause and effect, were they to go back on the trail to the point from which they started and try it over again, under the same circumstances, they would land about where they are now. The same causes would produce the same effect. I confess that I have no inexpressible yearnings to try my life over again. Even if it were possible to do so, I have followed the trail of my life for something over 50 years. It has led me into varied and strange experiences. The last 26 years, by a train of circumstances I was not able to control, brought me to the present place and hour. Perhaps it may be proper for me to say, with St. Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is good to be here. The man who chooses the career of outlawry is either a natural fool or an innocent madman. The term outlaw has a varied meaning. A man may be an outlaw and yet a patriot. There's the outlaw with a heart of velvet and a hand of steel. There's the outlaw who never molested the sacred sanctity of any man's home. There's the outlaw who never dethroned a woman's honor or assailed her heritage. And there's the outlaw who has never robbed the honest poor. Have you heard of the outlaw who in the far off western land where the sun dips to the horizon in infinite beauty, was the adopted son of the Kutani Indians. It was one of the saddest scenes in all the annals of human tragedy. It was during one of those fierce conflicts which characterized early frontier days. The white outlaw had influenced the red man to send a message of peace to the whites, and for this important mission, the little son of the Kutani chief was selected. The young fawn mounted his horse, but before the passport of peace was delivered, the brave little courier was shot to pieces by a cavalcade of armed men who slew him before questioning his mission. The little boy was being stripped of the adornments peculiar to Indians when the outlaw rode upon the scene. Take your hands off him or by God I'll cut them off, he shouted. You have killed a lone child, the messenger of peace, peace which I risked my life to secure for the white men who outlawed me. Taking the dead body tenderly in his arms, he rode back to face the fury of a wronged people. He understood the penalty, but went to offer himself as a ransom and was shot to death. This, however, is not the class of outlaws I would discuss, for very often force of circumstances makes outlaws of men. But I would speak of the criminal outlaw, whom I would spare not, nor excuse. My friends, civilization may be a thin veneer, and the world today may be slimy with hypocrisy. 
but no man is justified in killing lions to feed dogs. Outlawry is often a fit companion for treason and anarchy, for which the lowest seats of hell should be reserved. The outlaw, like the commercial freebooter, is often a deformity on the face of nature that darkens the light of God's day. I need not explain my career as an outlaw, a career that has been gorgeously colored with fiction. To me, the word outlaw is a living coal of fire. The past is a tragedy, a tragedy wherein danger lurks in every trail. I may be pardoned for hurrying over a few wild, relentless years that led up to a career of outlawry, a memory that cuts like the sore blades of a squadron of cavalry. The outlaw is like a big black bird from which every passerby feels licensed to pluck a handful of feathers. My young friend, if you are endowed with physical strength, valor, and a steady hand, let me warn you to use them well, for God who gave them is the final victor. Think of a man born of splendid parents, good surroundings, the best of advantages, a fair intellectuality with the possibility of being President of the United States and with the courage of a field general. Think of him lying stagnant in a prison cell. This does not apply alone to the highway outlaw, but to those outlaws who are sometimes called by the softer name financier. Not long ago, I heard a man speak of a certain banker, and I was reminded that prisons do not contain all the bad men. He said every dog that dies has some friend to shed a tear, but when that man dies, there will be universal rejoicing. I am not exactly a lead man, but it may surprise you to know that I have been shot between 20 and 30 times and am now carrying over a dozen bullets which have never been extracted. How proud I should have been had I been scarred battling for the honor and glory of my country. Those wounds I received while wearing the gray I've ever been proud of, and my regret is that I did not receive the rest of them during the war with Spain for the freedom of Cuba and the honor and glory of this great and glorious republic. But alas, they were not, and it is a memory embalmed that nails a man to the cross. I was in prison when the war with Cuba was inaugurated a war that will never pass from memory while hearts beat responsive to the glory of battle in the cause of humanity. How men turned from the path of peace and seizing the sword followed the flag. As the blue ranks of American soldiery scaled the heights of heroism and the smoke rose from the hot altars of the battle gods and freedom's wrongs avenged, so the memory of Cuba's independence will go down in history. Glorious as our own revolution, 76 and 98, twin jewels set in the crown of sister countries, Spain and the world have learned that beneath the folds of our nation's flag there lurks a power as irresistible as the wrath of God. Remember, friends, I do not uphold war for commercial pillage. War is a terrible thing, and it leads men sometimes out of the common avenues of life. Without reference to myself, men of this land, let me tell you, emphatically, dispassionately, and absolutely, that war makes savages of men and dethrones them from reason. It is too often sugar-coated with the word patriotism to make it bearable, and men call it national honor. Come with me to the prison, where for a quarter of a century I have occupied a lonely cell. When the door swings in on you there, the world does not hear your muffled wail. There is little to inspire mirth in prison. For a man who has lived close to the heart of nature, in the forest, in the saddle, to imprison him is like caging a wild bird. And yet imprisonment has brought out the excellencies of many men. I have learned many things in the lonely hours there. I have learned that hope is a divinity. I have learned that a surplus of determination conquers every weakness. I have learned that you cannot mate a white dove to a blackbird. I have learned that vengeance is for God and not for man. I have learned that there are some things better than a picture on a church window. I have learned that the American people, and especially the good people of Minnesota, 
do not strip a fallen foe. I have learned that whoever says there is no God is a fool. I have learned that politics is often mere traffic and statesmanship trickery. I have learned that the honor of the Republic is put upon the plains in battle for. I have learned that the English language is too often used to deceive the commonwealth of labor. I have learned that the man who prides himself on getting on the wrong side of every public issue is as pernicious an enemy to the country as the man who openly fires upon the flag. And I have seen mute sufferings of men in prison which no human pen can portray. And I have seen men die there. During my 25 years of imprisonment, I have spent a large portion of the time in the hospital nursing the sick and soothing the dying. Oh, the sadness, the despair, the volcano of human woe that lurks in such an hour. One, a soldier from the north, I met in battle when I wore the gray. In 63, I had led to safety beyond the Confederate lines in Missouri. And in 97, he died in my arms in the Minnesota prison. A few moments before, a full pardon had arrived from the president. The details of this remarkable coincidence were pathetic in the extreme, equaled only by the death of my young brother Bob. And yet, my dear friends, prisons and prison discipline, which sometimes destroys the reason and perpetuate the stigma upon those who survive them, these, I say, are the safeguards of the nation. A man has plenty of time to think in prison, and I might add, it is an ideal place for a man to study law, religion, and Shakespeare, not forgetting the president's messages. However, I would advise you not to try to get into prison just to find an ideal place for these particular studies. I find, after careful study, that law is simply an interpretation of the Ten Commandments. Nothing more, nothing less. All law is founded upon Scripture, and Scripture, in the form of religion or law, rules the universe. The infidel who ridicules religion is forced to respect the law, which in reality is religion itself. It is not sufficient alone to make good and just laws, but our people must be educated or should be from the cradle up to respect the law. This is one great lesson to be impressed upon the American people. Let the world know that we are a law-loving nation, for our law is our life. Experience has taught me that there is no true liberty apart from the law. Law is a boundary line, a wall of protection, circumscribing the field in which liberty may have her freest exercise. Beyond the boundary line, freedom must surrender her rights and change her name to penalty for transgression. The law is no enemy but the friend of liberty. The world and the planets move by law. Disregarding the law by which they move, they would become wanderers in the bleak darkness forever. The human mind, in its normal condition, moves and works by law. When self-will, blinded by passion or lust, enters her realm and breaks her protecting laws, mind then loses her sweet liberty of action and becomes a transgressor. Chaos usurps the throne of liberty and mind becomes at enmity with law. How many, many times the words of the poet have sung to my soul during the past 26 years. Eternal spirit of the chainless mind, brightest in dungeons liberty thou art, for there thy habitation is the heart, the heart which love of thee alone can bind. Nowhere is patriotism needed more than at the ballot box. There the two great contestants are country and self, and unless the spirit of patriotism guides the vote, our country is sure to lose. To be faithful citizens, we must be honest in our politics. The political star which guides us should be love for our country and our country's laws. Patriotism, side by side with Christianity, I would have to go down to future generations. For wherever the church is destroyed, you are making room for asylums and prisons. With the martyred Garfield, I too believe, 
that our great national danger is not from without. It may be presumptuous in me to prefer so many suggestions to you who have been living in a world from which I have been exiled for 25 years. I may have formed a wrong conception of some things, but you will be charitable enough to forgive my errors. I hope to be of some assistance to mankind and will dedicate my future life to unmask every wrong in my power and aid civilization to rise against further persecution. I want to be the drum major of a peace brigade who would rather have the goodwill of his fellow creatures than shoulder straps from any corporate power. One of the lessons impressed upon me by my life experience is the power that which we call personal influence, the power of one mind or character over another. Society is an aggregate of units. The units are related. No one lives or acts alone independently of another. Personal influence plays its part in the relations we sustain to each other. Do you ask me to define what I mean by personal influence? It is the sum total of what a man is and its effect upon another. Someone has said every man is what God made him, and some are considerably more so. That which we call character is the sum total of all his tendencies, habits, appetites, and passions. The terms character and reputation are too often confused. Character is what you really are. Reputation is what someone else would have you. Every man has something good in him. Probably none of us can say that we are all goodness. I have noticed that when a man claims to be all goodness, that claim alone does not make his credit any better in business or at the bank. If a man is good, the world has a way of finding out his qualities. Most men are willing to admit, at least to themselves, that their qualities are somewhat mixed. I do not believe that the good people of the world are all bunched up in one corner and the bad ones in another. Christ's parable of the wheat and the tares explains that to my satisfaction. There is goodness in all men, and sermons even in stones. But goodness and badness is apt to run in streaks. Man, to use the language of another, is a queer combination of cheek and perversity, insolence, pride, impudence, vanity, jealousy, hate, scorn, baseness, insanity, honor, truth, wisdom, virtue, and urbanity. He's a queer combination, all right, and those elements of his nature and their effects on other people we call personal influence. Many a man is not altogether what he has made himself, but what others have made him. But a man's personal influence is within his own control. This is at the gateway of his nature, from which his influence goes forth that he needs to post his sentinels. Mind stands related to mind, somewhat in the relation of cause and effect. Emerson said, you send your boy to school to be educated, but the education that he gets is largely from other boys. It is a kind of education that he will remember longer and have a greater influence upon his character and career in life than the instructions he gets from the teacher. The great scholar Elihu Britt has said, No human being can come into this world without increasing or diminishing the sum total of human happiness. No one can detach himself from the connection. There is no spot in the universe to which he can retreat from his relations to others. This makes living and acting among our fellows a serious business. It makes life a stage ourselves the actors, some of us being remarkably bad actors, and imposes upon us the obligation to act well on our part. Therein all honor lies. And in order to do this, it behooves us to stock up with the qualities of mind and character, the influence of which will be helpful to those who follow the trail behind us. Another plain duty my experience has pointed out is that each of us owes an honest manly effort toward the material world's progress. Honest labor is the key that unlocks the door of happiness. One of the silliest notions that a young man can get into his head is the idea that the world owes him a living. It does not owe you the fraction of a red cent, young man. 
What have you done for the world that put it under obligation to you? When did the world become indebted to you? Who cares for you in the years of helpless infancy? Who built a schoolhouse where you got the rudiments of your education? The world was made and equipped for men to develop it. Almighty God has furnished the world well. He provided abundant coal beds, oceans of oil, boundless forests, seas of salt. He has ribbed the mountain with gems fit to deck the brows of science, eloquence, and art. He has furnished earth to produce for all the rudiments of man. He has provided man himself with an intellect to fathom and develop the mysteries of his handiwork. He has furnished earth to produce all the rudiments of man. He has provided man himself with an intellect to fathom and develop the mysteries of his handiwork. Now he commands that mortal man shall do the rest. And what a generous command it is. And this is the world that owes you a living, is it? This reminds me of a man who built and thoroughly equipped a beautiful church and presented it as a gift to the congregation. After expressing their gratitude, a leading member of the church said to the generous donor, And now may we request that you put a lightning rod on the church to secure it against lightning. The giver replied, No, I have built a church wherein to worship Almighty God, and if he sees fit to destroy it by lightning, let him strike. There was a church struck by lightning in New Jersey, where the big trust magnets met for worship, and the Lord is excused for visiting it with lightning. No, the Lord is not going to strike down your good works at all. He has laid out an earthly paradise for each of us, and nothing is due us except what we earn by honest toil and noble endeavor. We owe the world a debt of gratitude we can never repay for making this a convenient dwelling place. We owe the world the best there is in us for its development. Gerald Massey put it right when he said, Toil is creation's crown. Worship is duty. Another important lesson life has taught me is the value, the priceless value, of good friends. And with Shakespeare I say, grapple them to thy soul with hooks of steel. But truly, this world would be a barren world without the association of friends. But a man must make himself worthy of friends. For the text teaches us that a man who wants friends must show himself friendly. What I am today, or strive to be, I owe largely to my friends. Friends to whom I fail in language to express my gratitude, which is deeper than the lips. Friends who lead us to believe that stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Friends who understand that human nature and sincerity are often clothed in prison garb. Friends who have decreed that one false step does not lame a man for life. Oh, what a generous doctrine. And although unwritten, I believe God has set his seal upon it. Honest friendship is a grand religion. And if we are true to ourselves, the poet tells us we cannot be false to any man. However, I am forced to admit that there are many brands of friendship existing these days which had not birth in our time. For instance, a number of men have visited me in prison and assured me of their interest in a pardon, etc. They have talked so eloquently and earnestly that I thought I was fortunate to enlist the sympathies and aid of such splendid men. After the first or second visit, I was informed as gently as possible that a price was attached to this friendship. How much would I give them for endorsing or signing a petition for a pardon? I remember how I glared at them, how my pulse almost ceased beating at such demands. What an injustice to the public to petition a man out of prison for a price. If a man cannot come out of prison on his merits, let him remain there. I hold, too, that if there is honor among thieves, there should be among politicians and pretentious citizens. I hate a liar and a false man. I hate a hypocrite, a man whose word to his friends is not as good as gold. What an injustice to the public to petition a man out of prison for a price. If a man cannot come out of prison on his merits, let him remain there. I hold, too, that if there is honor among thieves, there should be among politicians and pretentious citizens. I hate a liar and a false man. I hate a hypocrite, 
a man whose word to his friends is not as good as gold. My friends, there is just one thing I will say in my own defense, if you will so far indulge me. I do not believe in doing under the cover of darkness that which will not bear the light of day. During my career of outlawing, I rode into town under the glare of the noonday sun, and all men knew my mission. Corporations of every color had just cause to despise me then, but no man can accuse me of prowling about at night, nor of ever having robbed an individual or the honest poor. In our time, a man's word was equal to his oath, and seldom did a man break faith when he had once pledged himself to another. What I say to you, fellow citizens, I say not in idle boast, but from the soul of a man who reverses truth in all its simplicity. Think of it, a price for a man's profured friendship. On my soul, I did not even know how to comprehend so monstrous a proposition, and believe me, even the unfortunate creatures about me in prison look more like men than your respectable citizens and professional men with a price for their friendship. I should like to say something to the ladies who have honored me with their presence, but as I have been a bachelor all my life, I scarcely know what to say. I do know, though, that they are the divine creatures of a divine creator. I do know that they are the high priestesses of this land, and to us say, God could not be everywhere, so he made a woman. One almost needs the lantern of a Diogenes in this progressive age to find an honest man, but not so with a good woman who is an illumination in herself, the light of her influence shining with the radiance of its own. You will agree with me that the following lines contain more truth than poetry, and I bow to the splendid genius of the author. Blame woman if not some appear, too cold at times and some too gay and light. Some griefs now deep, some woes are hard to bear. Who knows the past and who can judge them right? Perhaps you have heard of the banquets for gentlemen only, well, it was upon one of these occasions that one of the guests was called upon to respond to a toast, the ladies. There being no ladies present, he felt safe in his remarks. I do not believe, he said, that there are any real true women living anymore. The guest opposite him sprang to his feet and shouted, I hope that the speaker refers only to his own female relations. I could never understand either. When a man goes wrong, it is called misfortune, while if a woman goes wrong, it is called shame. But I presume, being in prison 25 years, I am naturally dull and should not question a world that I have not lived in for a quarter of a century. I tell you, my friends, that I know very little of women, but of one thing I am morally certain. If the front seats of paradise are not reserved for women, I am willing to take a back seat with them. It seems to me that every man who had a mother should have a proper regard for womanhood. My own mother was a combination of all the best elements of high character that belong to true wife and motherhood. Her devotion and friendship were as eternal as the very stars of heaven, and no misfortune could dwarf her generous impulses or curdle the milk of human kindness in her good heart. Her memory has been an altar, a guiding star, a divinity in the darkest hour when regrets were my constant companions. It is true that I was a mere boy in my teens when the war was on, but there is no excuse for neglecting a good mother's counsel, and no good can possibly result. I was taught that honor among men and charity in the errors of others were the chief duties of mankind, the fundamentals of law both human and divine. In those two commandments I have not failed, but in other respects I fell short of my home influence and so my young friends do not do as I have done, but do as I tell you to do, honor the fourth commandment. There is no heroism in outlawry, and the fate of each outlaw in his turn should be an everlasting lesson to the young of the land. And even as Benedict Arnold, the patriot and traitor, dying in an ugly garret in a foreign land, cried with his last breath to the lone priest beside him, wrap my body in the American flag. So the outlaw from his inner soul, if not from his lips, cries out, 
Oh God, turn back the universe. There is another subject I want to say a word about, one which I never publicly advocated while in prison, for the reason that I feared the outside world would believe it a disguise to obtain my freedom. Freedom is the birthright heritage of every man, and it was very dear to me. But if the price of it was to pretend to be religious, the price was too high, and I would rather have remained in prison. Some men in prison fly to it as a refuge in sincerity, some otherwise. But to the sincere, it is a great consolation, for it teaches men that hope is a divinity, without which no man can live and retain his reason. But now that I have been restored to citizenship, I feel free to express my views upon religion without fear that men will accuse me of hypocrisy. I do not see why the word hypocrisy was ever put in the English language. Now I am a lecturer, not a minister, but I want to say that I think it is a wise plan to let the Lord have his own way with you. That's logic. The man who walks with God is in good company. Get into partnership with him, but don't try to be the leading member of the firm. He knows more about the business than you do. You may be able for a time to practice deception upon your fellow men, but don't try to fire any blank cartridges at the author of the universe. There are a great many ways to inspire a man with true Christian sentiment, and I must say that the least of them is sitting down and quoting a text from Scripture. Religious men and women have visited me in prison who have never mentioned religion, but have had the strongest influence over me. Their sincerity and conduct appeal to one more strongly than the bare Scripture. I can see in imagination now one whom I have so often seen in reality while in prison. She was a true, sweet, lovely Christian lady. I remember once asking her if all the people of her church were as good as she was. She replied honestly and straightforwardly, no. You will not find them all so liberal toward their unfortunate brothers, and every church has its share of hypocrites, mine the same as others. But God and the church remain just the same. There are some don'ts I would call to your attention. One of them is don't try to get rich too quickly by grasping every bait thrown out to the unwary. I have been in the society of the fellows who tried to get rich quickly for the past 25 years, and for the most part, they are a poor lot. I do not know but that I would reverse Milton's lines so as to read, "'Tis better to sit with a fool in paradise than some of those wise ones in prison. Don't resort to idleness. The boy who wears out the seat of his trousers holding down dry goods boxes on the street corners will never be President of the United States." The farmer who drives to town for pleasure several days in the week will soon have his farm advertised for sale. An idle man is sure to go into the hands of a receiver. My friends, glorious opportunities are before us, with the Republic's free institutions at your command. Science and knowledge have unlocked their vaults wherein poverty and wealth are not classified. A fitting theater where the mastermind shall play the leading role. And now, with your permission, I will close with a bit of verse from Reno, the famous poet scout. His lines are the embodiment of human nature as it should be, and to me they are a sort of creed. He says, I never like to see a man a-wrestling with the dumps, cause in the game of life he doesn't always catch the trumps. But I can always cotton to a free and easy cuss, as takes his dose and thanks the Lord it wasn't any wuss. There ain't no use of swearing and cussing at your luck, cause you can't correct your troubles more than you can drown a duck. Remember that when beneath the loads your suffering head is bowed, that God will sprinkle sunshine in the trail of every cloud. If you should see a fellow man with trouble's flag unfurled and looking like he didn't have a friend in all the world, go up and slap him on the back and holler, how'd you do? And grasp his hand so warm he'll know he has a friend in you. And ask him what's a-hurtin' him and laugh his cares away and tell him that the darkest hour is just before the day. 
Don't talk in graveyard palaver, but say it right out loud, that God will sprinkle sunshine in the trail of every cloud. The world at best is but a hash of pleasures and of pain. Some days are bright and sunny, and some are sloshed with rain. And that's just how it ought to be, so when the clouds roll by, we'll know just how to appreciate the bright and smiling sky. So learn to take things as they come, and don't sweat at the pores, because the Lord's opinion doesn't coincide with yours. But always keep remembering, when cares your path enshroud, that God has lots of sunshine to spill behind the cloud. End of chapter 38 End of the story of Cole Younger by himself This recording is in the public domain.